trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, once again, I thank you for joining me for the show. Hey, if you're a longtime listener or a first-time listener, welcome. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think. Our show is brought to you uh, every day, Monday through Friday, right here, either at uh, the time of this live broadcast or in podcast form, which it turns out is where a lot of people tend to access the program. And it's brought to you by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College and Rio del Sion Home Lots. You'll find some convenient links in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com that will put you in touch with my uh, my sponsors and give you a chance to at least reach out to them. Look, if you don't need their product or their business right now, that's fine. Maybe you know somebody who does, but uh, take the time to drop them a note and just let them know that their message is reaching your ears and tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. All right, let's dive right in. I don't know about you, but... Uh, the, the road to becoming a wrong thinker is not necessarily an easy, gently sloping one that, uh, you know, would never cause you to work up a sweat. In fact, uh, sometimes it's tough, probably tougher mentally than anything. In fact, one of the toughest aspects of becoming a wrong thinker is learning how to come to grips with the idea that you are going to be perceived as a radical by the people around you. And that can be painful. I mean, we, look... As, as human beings, you know, part of our human nature is we want to be accepted. And I don't know of anybody who doesn't appreciate praise more than they appreciate condemnation, right? Maybe the masochists really like to be condemned. Oh, yes, please, please abuse me a little bit more. No, no, we like to have our, our ego stroked. We like to be told good things, patted on the back, out of boy, way to go. Keep up the good work. But when it comes to thinking outside the box, that can be tough. Swimming upstream against the crowd, even, even when it's people who know and love you, it can be a little bit unnerving when they're looking at, they're giving you the side eye, like, what the heck is wrong with you? Well, Isaac Morehouse, one of the founders of Praxis, has a powerful, liberating take on being a radical. This is some really solid advice. He says, a reader emailed me asking how I feel comfortable sharing political views that are widely unpopular. And he says, I've also asked, he also asked if I've written about this. And, and Isaac says, I don't think I have. So here's my response. He says, I found that being somewhat radical has a high social price, but being really radical doesn't. For example, if I were to tweet about how I don't like a specific politician or how I think a specific tax should be lower... He says, I'd probably get a good bit of pushback. But my posts are about how I don't care about any politician, nor do I think any tax is a good idea at all. As such, it's rather disarming to the political lynch mobs. It's out of frame, so they really don't know what to do with it. This is one of the things I love about Isaac Morehouse, by the way. He says, I don't consider myself political at all. 
and I don't see things through that lens. I think this makes it easier to say some things because I don't speak in the language of trigger words people on the left and right are ready to fight with each other over. He says, my experience has been that if I'm buying into political narratives and picking a side, there's a cost to talking about it. If I ignore news and politics and rise above the fray and focused on first primp- and focus on first principles like nonviolence and individual liberty, the price is pretty low. He says, I also make a point to talk a lot more about positive things like my work, education, entrepreneurship, and other stuff that I then and other stuff that I do things deemed political. He says, daily blogging really helped me get clarity on my thoughts and what I'm willing to share, especially since nobody reads a personal blog for at least several years, if ever. He says, remember, you don't need to weigh in and share your opinion, but you're free to. Just be unthreatened and be willing to back them up with kindness and honesty. Man, that is good advice. And it, and it just it resonates so clearly with me because this is the approach I'm, I'm trying to take as well. I know sometimes political topics are discussed on this program, and it's, it's not that uh, you know I'm trying to avoid them at all costs, but I just don't find the value that some people do in you know consuming a steady diet of political commentary and political intrigue and political news and everything's political. And, and trust me, we all know people who... For for them, everything in life is political. When they're walking down the aisle at the grocery store, they're looking at different name brands. Well, we can't buy that one. Well, they took a stand once that I disagreed with. Or I can only buy this one because I know that they agree with me politically. Talk about painting yourself into a, a radicalized little corner where only things that have passed my purity test, you know, are allowed to be a part of my life. That's the danger of politics. It just it pits everybody against one another in a zero-sum game. I hate that. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to contribute to the division. And that's why I like to take a slightly different approach. I'm not saying it's a better approach, okay? So if, if politics is what really makes your heart sing, I'm not going to tell you, well, you shouldn't do that. But I am going to confess that uh, in my own life, my personal well-being in terms of my peace of mind, uh, my level of anxiety or frustration, as the case may be, seems to be tied directly to how much political commentary and political news I'm consuming at any given time. And it's also tied to how much time I'm spending on social media, which it turns out is quite a lot, so I kind of want to cut back. <laughs> but it's I love Isaac's point here about you know the, the cost of being somewhat radical lukewarm, if you will, is really pretty high. But if you want to be really radical, it's not. Because people really, they don't know how to deal with it. And uh, to illustrate this, you know, I I know that uh, people will roll their eyes when I use this example, but there are people who believe the moon landing was faked. And frankly, there is some interesting evidence, or at least what appears to be some interesting evidence, that casts some doubts on certain aspects of the official account. Now, having said that, I've also talked with people who, who worked on the, the lunar landing program back in the day, you know, in the 1960s, who uh, swear up and down, look, there were thousands and thousands of people working on this. If this was fake, you know, there's no way they would have been able to keep it from everybody. So I'm a skeptic about the skepticism regarding the moon landing, but here's the point. When someone stands up and says, well, you know, we never really actually went to the moon, 
That sounds like a pretty radical thing, right? But if you want to take the the argument out of it or just basically, if you want to out-radical them, be really radical, you just look at them and kind of chuckle and go, you still believe there's a moon? What do they say at that point? I mean, what can they say, right? They're all, they're all, uh, you know, dusted up and ready to go. Oh, come on, let's let's fight. Let's fight over whether or not the moon landing was real. <laughs> you still believe that there's a moon? Please. Anyway, I'm not saying that you have to be a skeptic or that you have to, you know, be uh, be so oh so above the crowd on everything here, but uh, not thinking and speaking in purely political terms does bring a certain amount of peace to your life. And and here's the other benefit. And I'm only offering this as as something to consider. It definitely allows you to focus your energy on other aspects of life that don't pit you against someone else. In other words, you can do productive things. Government is just one facet of our society, one facet of our life. But, uh, but the way things are set up, the way the media reports, the way that a lot of people approach how they understand the world, you would think it was the only thing. It is both the source of our destruction and our salvation, and they're partly right on that, at least the destruction part. I'll have a link to Isaac Morehouse's article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I wanted to also touch on the idea of uh, the, the biggest downside of, of having had your eyes opened to the gravity of our situation. And, and I want to contrast this with the, the, the concept of being woke. You're going to hear people talk about, oh, yes, the, they're very woke. They're very aware. They're, they're very inclusive. And they're, they just they see things that other people can't see. And, and by this, I mean they could see sexism in a toothpaste commercial. That's how woke they are. That's, that's not the kind of awareness that I'm talking about. But once you have really caught on to the idea that, hey, what if the news media wasn't telling me the whole truth? What if they were only giving me selected ideas or selected facts or factoids in an attempt to, to uh, stampede the herd in a particular direction? What then? Once your eyes have come open, it is almost impossible to close them again. And I'm saying that uh, as it's it's a bad thing as well as a good thing. When we come back, we talk about the dimming of the IQ of America. It's a great essay from Jeff Minnick on intellectualtakeout.org. He explains what the dimming of America's IQ looks like. He also explains why it's happening. We'll get to it here in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Please feel free to subscribe to the podcast. No, just it's, it's a very simple thing. Go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There's a subscribe button down there at the bottom of the show notes. Listen, if you find value in what I'm offering you each day on this program, if it makes you think, if it gives you some clarity, if it gives you some peace of mind for that matter, I would ask you, please consider becoming a patron. Whether you want to you know, donate a one-time donation of a dollar or $5 or $10 or you want to do it on a monthly basis, I so appreciate those who make it possible for me to focus my efforts on finding and distributing the best content that I can. 
And, you know, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'll put my money where my mouth is, meaning, you know, I, I have uh, I have a lot of things I'm working on at any given time to, uh, you know, provide for my family. But my heart is really in what I'm doing here behind this microphone each day. Given my druthers, that's where I would rather spend my precious time and energy is uh, being that uh, trusted voice of truth and reason and hopefully providing some encouragement as well as insight. Every dollar that, uh, that my listeners donate toward that end, I treat as, as sacred funding. I treat it as something that uh, is a stewardship for which I'm accountable. And uh, anyway, I greatly appreciate it. So thank you in advance for those who, uh, who answer this call. All right. This is going to sound like name-calling, but I want you to hear out what Jeff Minnick has to say. He's talking about dimming the IQ of America. First thing he says, Americans and Europeans are getting dumber. Okay, now that's that may sound harsh, but he says at least that's the conclusion David Solway reaches in his piece, The Decline of Intelligence in the West. In the last century, Jeff Minnick says, various studies have shown the average IQ in Western countries dropping by about 14%, Solway reports. He points readers to these investigations and offers a score of examples illustrating this decline, ranging from video interviews of college students who know next to nothing about the history of our country to leaders who say corpsmen instead of corpsmen when referring to combat medics. Solway then looks for reasons behind this decline. Why in our new age of technology and advanced science are we losing our capacity to think and reason? Here's a quote from Solway. Various theories have been proposed to account for accelerating neural descent, ranging from the Dewey-inspired progressive education agenda, working its leveling passage from the turn of the 20th century to the decrepit public schools and failed universities of the present day, to the softening effect of prolonged affluence and ease on a culture, to the debilitating influence of smart technology that performs our cognitive functions for us, to the assumption that women of higher intelligence are having fewer children, implying that women of lower intelligence are driving population growth, to the effects of increased media exposure and consequent lessening of reading, of reading rather, to the emergence of the vices of envy and resentment owing to radical egalitarianism and the rancor of the underperforming against the skilled, hardworking, and successful. Whatever the cause or causes may be, intellectual deterioration seems to be the case." End quote. Now, Jeff Minnick says, of these possible causes, I most strongly favor our educational system, which was awful a year ago and is now abysmal thanks to COVID-19 school closings, smart technology, and the decline in reading. And he says, I would add addiction to social media, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, as a strong candidate for this list. Some of this stupidity seems to be putting, be getting put into action rather before our eyes as our country's transformed, as the following examples suggest. He asks, what person with the ability to reason would keep printing off trillions of dollars, sinking a nation deeper and deeper into debt? Even someone as ignorant of economics as myself knows the crippling effects those printed worthless bills will have in the future. He asks, who would call for measures to defund the police and then be shocked at skyrocketing crime rates in our cities? It doesn't take much to see the cause and effect in that one, yet many of our leaders seem to be unable to make the connection. What rocket scientist called for the impeachment of a president who was no longer in office? A genius doesn't declare that biological men should be eligible to compete with biological women in athletics, nor that 15-year-old girls and boys should share showers at school. 
Closer to home is this puzzle. He says, every time I go into town, I see several people wearing masks on sidewalks and in parking lots. It's wintertime. The temperatures are in the 30s, and often a brisk wind blows down the streets. The majority of the mask wearers are under 30 years old. What are they thinking? Jeff Minnick says, when I visit my coffee shop, a sign directs me to put on my face covering, and I do so, but only because I like the employees and seek not to offend them. I pay for my coffee, carry it into the sitting area, remove my mask, and happily type away, often surrounded by five or six other unmasked people. And he asks, does this arrangement make sense to anyone at all? Meanwhile, he says, here in Virginia, our schools are keeping all sorts of weird schedules, a hybrid system of distance learning and in-person academic instruction. Yet what percentage of the state's COVID-19 deaths occurred in young people 19 and under? Zero. And now with our schools so messed up for nearly a year, we can expect the cognitive abilities of most students to have suffered even more. So that brings the question, can we reverse this trend? Solway tells us, quote, it's a daunting task. The number of people incapable of lucid argument and civil debate, whether internet trolls, social media vulgarians, angry progressivists, media ignoramuses, and intellectually challenged political leaders, is legion. It's therefore by no means astonishing that the greatest civilization the world has ever known, the Judeo-Christian West, is subsiding into a state of cognitive expiry, prone to fantasies and delusions, unable to confront and parse the reality of the world. Oblivious to the symbiosis of man, history, and nature, distracted by pseudoscientific baubles, bereft of spiritual substance, and foreign to the very idea of truth. End quote. That's such a powerful quote. And Solway concludes by telling us it may take a century to turn this trend around. Now, Jeff Minnick says, here's one bit of good news. <laughs> he says, the next time you're on the sofa, in your living room, screaming, idiot, at the talking head on television, Pause a moment to reflect on the possibility that your comment may be closer to the truth than you know. He says the charitable among us should extend a smidgen of pity toward those dumbed-down politicians and newscasters. Look, I remember very well the days when I would sit and I would yell at the TV while watching the evening news. Now, in my defense, that was before I began hosting a talk show or a program of my own. So it's been quite a while. I've been doing this for a little bit. But I remember my wife's sense of relief. She said, you would get so frustrated watching the news. And, and it's true. I did. And I was frustrated because even at that, uh, at that stage of understanding, which was just beginning, I mean, I was, I was a neophyte. I understood that someone was spinning and otherwise shading the way that the news was reported in such a way that it was being used to to deceive me and anybody else who was watching or, or reading it. And I found that just this side of intolerable. Now, this is before I was uh, introduced to the idea of uh, classical liberal arts education, which, by the way, um, I can't recommend strongly enough for someone who's serious about owning their own worldview and, and learning to think clearly and independently. There's just there's nothing like it. And you don't have to sit in a classroom to get a good world-class classical liberal arts education. You, just, you need to be willing to read books that are above your head. You need to be willing to discuss it with other people. And you'll learn how to, to think. you learn how to question, how to weigh, how to measure 
a situation. But you also become, in the process, the kind of person who doesn't sit there and just, you know, shout from the sidelines and, and, you know, boo and heckle the people who are on the field. You're not the person who's sitting there just, you know, blindly swatting away at, at symptoms and, you know, hoping you get lucky and land a telling blow. Instead, you become the rational person, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, you become the rational person in the room who can zero in unfailingly on the root of the problem and can actually help formulate solutions and bring people together from differing points of view to provide those solutions. I know it's a pretty lofty goal, but what were you going to do with the rest of your life anyway, right? Because this is a lifelong process that we're talking about. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to mention that our program is brought to you in part today by one of our great sponsors, Rio Del Sion Home Lots. This is uh, my friend John Staples down in southern Utah, and if you are fortunate enough to be relocating to my home state of Utah, particularly if you're relocating to southern Utah, thinking about building a home, this this is something you should really take a look at. Rio del Sion home lots are located just outside of Zion National Park, right alongside the scenic Virgin River uh, near the town of Virgin. And uh, there's a link there in the show notes. You can just click on it. You'll get a nice little virtual tour. You can kind of see the landscape for yourself. I don't know that there's a more beautiful place in this state. And that is saying something because Utah is blessed with an incredible amount of natural beauty. Rio del Sion Home Lots, they are one of my sponsors here on the show. Please reach out to them. Tell them that you're hearing their message. And if you're considering relocating to my, my great home state of Utah, maybe consider making that your home. All right, so let's uh, let's get back into this discussion of uh, what it means to, to be woke and, and uh, where this is leading us in our society today. Um, this is one of the best examples of what I could point to as the deliberate dumbing down of the populace, and that is the effort to rewrite history, to erase the past, essentially to discard everything that came before us as wrong or superstitious or racist or misogynist, because it's being viewed through a culturally Marxist filter. That's another way of saying political correctness. I was mildly surprised, but then again, also not so surprised when I saw that uh, there is now a movement by woke English teachers across the country who are starting to call for purging Shakespeare from their curriculum in the name of being inclusive. I'll just share a couple excerpts with you. This is a New York Post article by Lee Brown. It says, William Shakespeare... Thou hast been getting canceled. An increasing number of woke teachers are refusing to study the bard, accusing his classic works of promoting misogyny, racism, homophobia, homophobia, classism, anti-Semitism, and misogyny. I, I don't know what I, I don't. I'm not familiar with that word, but it looks like misogyny, misogyny. Going to have to look that one up. A slew of English literature teachers told the School Library Journal (SLJ) how they were ditching the likes of Hamlet, Macbeth, and Romeo and Juliet to instead make room for modern, diverse, and inclusive voices. 
Shakespeare was a tool used to civilize black and brown people in England's empire, insisted Shakespeare scholar Anya Thompson, a professor of English at Arizona State University. Teachers also need to challenge the whiteness of the assumption that Shakespeare's works are universal, insisted Jeffrey Austin, head of Michigan High School's English Literature Department. Former Washington State public school teacher Claire Brunke told SLJ she banished the bard from her classroom to stray from centering the narrative of white, cisgender, heterosexual men. Eliminating Shakespeare was a step I could easily take toward that, and it proved worthwhile for my students, she insisted. Other teachers said they were sticking with Shakespeare but reframing his works through a more modern lens. Sarah Mulhern Gross, an English teacher at High Technology High School in Lindcroft, New Jersey, said she was teaching Romeo and Juliet with a side of toxic masculinity analysis. In her SLJ article, To Teach or Not to Teach, librarian Amanda McGregor acknowledged the bard as a genius wordsmith responsible for masterful wordplay, creative use of language, biting wit, puns, and innovative characters. Interesting. The school library has questioned, though, whether there's still a need to teach Shakespeare. And and this this teacher in particular said she understood why so many teachers were grappling and ultimately abandoning Shakespeare's work. McGregor wrote, Shakespeare's works are full of problematic, outdated ideas with plenty of misogyny, racism, homophobia, classism, anti-Semitism, and I got to look up this word, misogynoir. Hang on a second. I'm doing this one on the fly because I really want to know. And I'm not even seeing this in my in my dictionary, so okay, Apple, you need to update your your dictionary app. Anyway, the final word, I guess it, this this is misogyny that's particularly aimed at uh, black women. So that's that's misogynoir. Man, that just that sounds so pretentious. But here's the here's the thing. It's been a long time since uh, I used to go out on the road and and help teach courses in what were called face-to-face with greatness. And this was, you know, connecting people to the great works of literature, the great works of science, uh, the great works of poetry, basically what the greatest minds had created that came before us. And particularly when we talk about this in, in the context of Western civilization, we're talking about the great books of Western civilization, 3,000, maybe 3,300 years of the canon of Western thought, and it covers a lot of territory. This is this is not white is great and everything else isn't. It's 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 timeless wisdom, meaning wisdom that has stood the test of time and shown that human nature is remarkably consistent, no matter how far back you want to go in human history. But when it gets to Shakespeare, there was a particular uh, there was a particular part of this course called Shakespeare in the Bible. And uh, I used to teach this. Now, it's been, you know, over 10 years since I last taught one of these, so I'm, I'm kind of relying on memory. I, I'm not as tuned up as, as I would have been back in the day. But what you need to understand about Shakespeare, and, and, and the Bible, for that matter, is that when it came to the settling of America, meaning when people traveled over, you know, starting in what, what was it, the 17th century, when, when people really started to come over from Europe and to settle the new land, and we had a new continent to tame, and, you know, the, the, the United States were established, and the westward expansion and all of that. There were two primary works that you could find in most people's homes. 
Keeping in mind that when you were traveling across the ocean by ship to emigrate to the New World, or even when you were traveling across the land, you know, by wagon or handcart or covered wagon or whatever it may be, space was limited. You know, it's it's not a matter of, yeah, we just rented a U-Haul, threw all the boxes of books in and some bookshelves, and away we went. People had to choose very carefully what they would bring with them in terms of reading material. Would you care to guess what the two most popular pieces of literature were that people would would hold to? If they had nothing else to read, they would have a Bible, and very likely they would have the folio of Shakespeare's collected works. Now, we take it for granted, right? I mean, come on, we just reach into your pocket, you pull out your phone, and I can be distracted, I can be looking at whatever information I want. Oh, look, cat videos, or whatever the case may be. But when it comes to feeding your brain, and I want you to think about this, when people had some downtime, when they needed to decompress or they needed to relax, do something for their enjoyment, you know, when they weren't, you know, building a sod house or fighting off, you know, the Indians or, you know, killing buffalo to feed their family, they read. Why would they choose books like Shakespeare's works or why would they choose the Bible if they were so limited that they could only have, you know, one or maybe two volumes, you know, to choose from? Okay, here's the answer. Both the Bible and Shakespeare, if you you approach them from from the standpoint of works of literature, offer incredible insight into human nature. And Shakespeare especially, I'm not, I'm not putting him above the Bible in this regard. You know, I know that many people reverence the Bible. Hey, come on, that's God's word, and, and I would agree. And there's incredible wisdom, and there's stories, and there are principles that can be taught. There's, you know, there are so many levels of understanding. That's the, the, the definition of a classic work is something that you can learn from every single time that you return to it. Shakespeare fits that bill. And yes, you know, some of, some of his work is very lofty and highbrow. And there are, you know, the taming of the shrew. There's some definite misogyny in there, but there's a lesson behind it. There's always something that, that offers insights into human nature. And so to, to reduce him to, well, he's not modern or diverse or inclusive enough, therefore we shouldn't be teaching our students. That is severing the connection between what came before us and where we are today. I think it's a deliberate thing. I think the the deliberate severing of that connection is to make sure that people don't know who they are. Because people who don't know who they are essentially become, I'm trying to remember if it was Tacitus. I think it was Tacitus who talked about if, if we don't know the past, we become like little children, forever waiting to be told, you know, who and what we are. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. So to throw William Shakespeare out on his ear because, well, you know, of course he wasn't inclusive enough is to uh, ignore one of the great civilizing influences that contributed to uh, not just, you know, the, the literary genius of England and, and Western civilization, but uh, quite frankly to the, to the settling of this country. Think about the families, and I'm talking the common people. This isn't just highbrow stuff. This is what the common people would have Maybe they would gather together as a family and, you know, they, they would read from Shakespeare. But always, always there were lessons to be learned. And I think the real connection here is that was part of training their minds to think, to be classically, liberally educated. 
Now, can you do it just on Shakespeare alone? No. But you'd be better off than having nothing. I think we could agree on that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. As we move into the final segment here, I got to tell you, my, my days of yelling at the TV during the evening news, they're, they're over. But I'm, I'm still very frustrated with a lot of the, uh, the false and exaggerated claims that I see being spread by our, our corporate media, especially those regarding the uh, January 6th clash at the Capitol. Came across an article from Glenn Greenwald that uh, is, is so dead on on a number of points here. I'm going to include this in the show notes at uh, thebrianhydeshow.com. I encourage you to check this out for yourself because there's a story here that I know you have heard because it's been repeated ad nauseum for the last seven weeks. And it has to do with the, the death of a Capitol Police officer that uh, we were told was beat to death by the mob in, uh, in uh, you know, this pro-Trump mob on January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. And there's a problem with this story. But first, I'm going to let Glenn Greenwald kind of set the, the, the tone here. He says, what took place at the Capitol on January 6th was undoubtedly a politically motivated riot. As such, it should not be controversial to regard it as a dangerous episode. He says, any time force or violence is introduced into what ought to be the peaceful resolution of political conflicts, it should be lamented and condemned. But none of that justifies lying about what happened that day, especially the news by the news media. Condemning that riot doesn't allow, let alone require, echoing false claims in order to render the event even more menacing and serious than it actually was. He says there's no circumstance or motive that justifies the dissemination of false claims by journalists. And the more consequential the event, the less justified and more harmful serial journalistic falsehoods are. But this is exactly what happened and what continues to happen since that riot nearly seven weeks ago. And anyone who tries to correct these falsehoods is instantly attacked with the cynical accusation that if you only want truthful reporting about what happened, well, then you're trying to minimize what happened and are likely an apologist for, if not, a full-fledged supporter of the protesters themselves. One of the most significant of these falsehoods was the tale endorsed over and over without any caveats by the media for more than a month that Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick was murdered by the pro-Trump mob when they beat him to death with a fire extinguisher. Now he goes back and traces how this claim came about. He says the claim was first published by the New York Times January 8th in an article headlined Capitol Police Officer Dies from Injuries in Pro-Trump Rampage. It cited two anonymous law enforcement officials to claim that Sicknick died with the mob rampaging through the halls of Congress after he was struck with a fire extinguisher. A second New York Times article from that day bearing the more dramatic headline He Dreamed of Being a Police Officer Then Was Killed by a Pro-Trump Mob elaborated on that story. And by the way, in that story, that particular article, they claimed they struck him in the head with a fire extinguisher, according to two law enforcement officials, by the way, both conveniently anonymous. With a bloody gash in his head, Mr. Sicknick was rushed to the hospital and placed on life support. Now, after publication 
of these two articles, this horrifying story about a pro-Trump mob beating a police officer to death with a fire extinguisher was repeated over and over by multiple journalists on television, in print, and on social media. It became arguably the single most emphasized and known story of this event, and understandably so. I mean, we're talking a savage and barbaric act that resulted in the harrowing killing by a pro-Trump mob of a young Capitol Police officer. Greenwald says it took on such importance for a clear reason. Sicknick's death was the only example the media had of the pro-Trump mob deliberately killing anyone. In a January 11th article detailing the five people who died on the day of the Capitol protest, the New York Times again told the Sicknick story, quote, law enforcement officials said he had been physically engaging with protesters and was struck in the head with a fire extinguisher. But none of the other four deaths were at the hands of protesters, Greenwald points out. The only other person killed with deliberate violence was a pro-Trump protester, Ashley Babbitt, unarmed when shot in the neck by a police officer at close range. The other three deaths were all pro-Trump supporters. Kevin Greeson, who died of a heart attack outside the Capitol. Benjamin Phillips, the founder of a pro-Trump website called Trumparoo, who died of a stroke that day. And Roseanne Boyland, a fanatical Trump supporter whom the Times says was inadvertently killed in a crush of fellow rioters during their attempt to fight through a police line. This is why the fire extinguisher story became so vital to those intent on depicting those events in the most violent and menacing light possible. Without Sicknick having his skull bashed in with a fire extinguisher, there were no deaths that day that could be attributed to deliberate violence by pro-Trump protesters. Three weeks later, Washington Post said dozens of officers, meaning a total of 140, had various degrees of injuries, but none reported as life-threatening, and at least two police officers committed suicide after the riot. So Sicknick was the only person killed who was not a pro-Trump protester and the only one deliberately killed by the mob itself. Greenwald says it's hard to overstate how pervasive this fire extinguisher story became. Over and over, major media outlets and mainstream journalists used this story to dramatize what happened. And he gives examples here in his story. Tweets from the Lincoln Project, from the Associated Press. Oh, yes, the member of the mob encouraged by, uh, by Senator Hawley killed the police officer with a fire extinguisher, clubbed to death with a fire extinguisher, hit in the head with a fire extinguisher by a pro-Trump mob. Television hosts Glenn Greenwald says gravely intoned when telling this story, manipulating the viewers' emotions by making them believe the mob had done something unspeakably barbaric. After the media bombarded Americans with this story for a full month without pause, it took center stage at Trump's impeachment process. As a federal prosecutor, former federal prosecutor Andrew McCarthy noted, the article of impeachment itself stated that Trump supporters injured and killed law enforcement personnel. The House impeachment managers explicitly claimed on page 28 of their pretrial memorandum that the insurrectionists killed a Capitol Police officer by striking him in the head with a fire extinguisher. Once the impeachment trial ended in an acquittal, President Joe Biden issued a statement and referenced this claim in the very first paragraph. Sicknick said the president lost his life protecting the Capitol from a violent, riotous mob on January 6th, 2021. Are you sitting down? Might want to get a chair underneath you here. Because here's the deal. As Glenn Greenwald reports, the problem with this story is that it is false in all aspects. In all respects, rather. 
From the start, there was almost no evidence to substantiate it. The only basis were the two original New York Times articles asserting that this happened based on the claim of anonymous law enforcement officials. Now think about this. Despite this alleged brutal murder taking place in one of the most surveilled buildings on the planet, filled that day with hundreds of cell phones taping the events, nobody saw a video of it. No photographs depicted it. To this day, no autopsy report has been released. No details from any official source have been provided. Not only was there no reason to believe that this happened from the start, the little that was known should have caused doubt. On the same day that the Times published its two articles with the fire extinguisher story, ProPublica published one that should have raised serious doubts about it. That outlet interviewed Sicknick's brother who said that Sicknick had texted the family Wednesday night to say that while he had been pepper sprayed, he was in good spirits. Now that obviously conflicted with the Times story that the mob overpowered Sicknick and struck him in the head with a fire extinguisher, after which with a bloody gash on his head, Sicknick was rushed to the hospital and placed on life support. But no matter. The fire extinguisher story was now a matter of lore. Nobody could question it. Until after a February 2nd CNN article asked why nobody has been arrested for what was clearly the most serious crime committed that day, the brutal murder of Officer Sicknick with a fire extinguisher. And though the headline gave no hint of this, the middle of the article provided evidence which essentially declared the original New York Times story false. This is from the CNN article, quote, In Sicknick's case, it's still not publicly known what caused him to collapse the night of the insurrection. Findings from a medical examiner's review have not yet been released, and authorities have not made any announcements about that ongoing process. It goes on to say, according to one law enforcement official, medical examiners did not find signs that the officer sustained any blunt force trauma. So investigators believe that early reports that he was fatally struck by a fire extinguisher are not true. Now, Glenn Greenwald points out here, very few people noticed this remarkable admission buried in this article. None of this was seriously questioned until a relatively new outlet called Revolver News on February 9th compiled and analyzed all the contradictions and lack of evidence in the prevailing story, after which Fox News's Tucker Carlson, citing that article, devoted the first eight minutes of his February 10th program to examining these massive evidentiary holes. So, yeah, this is, this is how false narratives are spread. This is how falsehoods are spread. And yet, will there be any correction, any mea culpa on the part of those media outlets that have been fanning the flames of fear and, and, and inflating the threat? Yeah, not likely. How about the politicians? How about the president standing there waving the bloody shirt? Nope. They're lying, too. And now you know... The rest of the tale. This is The Brian Hyde Show.